Welcome to the 120th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with horror writer Brian Easton, author of the novel Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brian Easton, author of Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter and Heart of Scars, the second book of Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Jeff. Sure, sure. Well, first, I wanted to see if you could read the first page or two of the prologue of Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter. Sure, my pleasure. When I was 12, I couldn't wait to be a man. And I thought I'd be one when I turned 13. That meant everything to a boy who, more than anything, wanted to be like his papa. What I wanted was to make him proud of me because I'd had caused him so much grief. I thought if I did everything right, I could make it up to him. My father's name was Foster James, and he was French-Canadian. He met my mother, Abigail, in Nova Scotia, where they married and settled after World War II. Mother was half Cheyenne Indian. I was born in Halifax in 1950, and it was the nurses who named me Sylvester Logan. They said they couldn't stop my mother's bleeding. I don't think she ever got to hold me. We lived in an old house in Lethbridge, Alberta, near where Mama had grown up. Her parents were gone, and Papa's had died when he was young, so we only had each other. Papa had been a woodsman most of his life. He said it ran in his blood. From being with him, I learned to read the forest's secret language of sight and sound. The time we spent in the woods together was the finest I remember. We'd find tracks in the snow or mud, and he'd quiz me on which animal had made them. Or he'd point to a tree and say, I wish I knew what kind of tree that is, which was my cue to provide the answer. He taught me to fish in the summer, to hunt in the autumn, and to trap in the winter. I always believed that Papa held me responsible for Mama's death. There were times he would look at me like I was a ghost, and when I would ask him what was wrong, he would force a sad smile and shake his head. But most of the time, he just stared through me, and I could almost read his mind. I know you, he seemed to say. You're the one who killed my wife. I always felt ashamed. I don't remember ever hearing Papa laugh. But he didn't cry either. Real men didn't do such things. He believed tears were a sign of a weak spirit, and there was no place in my father's life for weakness. When I would cry, he would be stern and tell me to let it turn to something else. I suppose it was his way of dealing with pain, a mental exercise that changed weak emotions into strong ones. It also turned tears into anger. Every year, Papa took me rabbit hunting with my black Labrador, Brutus. The autumn of my ninth birthday, the three of us had found an area where loggers had left piles of dried brush and dead limbs, just the sort of places rabbits like to hide. Brutus flushed three from a particular pile, and Papa sent the first one rolling. I trained the beat of my 410 shotgun on the second, but as I tightened against the trigger, Brutus bolted into my line of fire. He yelped and tumbled into a heap. I rushed to him and dropped to the ground. His blood leaked onto my trousers as I held him. His eyes looked so surprised before he wilted in my arms. 
I buried my face in his neck and sobbed. I'm sorry, Brutus. Papa kneeled behind me and placed his hand on my shoulder. Crying won't bring him back, he said. Turn it to something else. Turn it to something else, boy. Tears don't help anyone. I tried to do what he said, like he taught me. But all I could think of was what it was that I'd killed my dog, just like I'd killed my mama. Papa's hand tightened as he pulled me away from the dog. I clung to him and I cried, but he just patted me on the back. Then he held me at arm's length. Look at me, Sylvester, he demanded. Real men don't cry. If you want to be a real man, then let it turn to something else. Turn it toward the rabbits. Do you understand? For the next two years, whenever I hunted rabbits, I didn't do it for the sport or for food. It was a vendetta. I wanted them dead because they'd made me kill my dog, and there was a cold sense of retribution every time I pulled the trigger. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your autobiography of a werewolf hunter novels yet, how would you describe the novels? Well, the novels are a departure from typical werewolf fare, I think, in the fact that they focus on uh, a human being rather than the monsters themselves. We see a lot today uh, with werewolves and, and vampires and very monster-centric uh, television and books and movies, and these things are great. I love them. Uh, but my books take a, a road away from that by dealing with uh, what I think is, is a, a true human uh, emotion, the human condition, if you will, uh, and it, it kind of explores what it would take to take up to make a man who essentially wants to be a good and decent human being and basically ruin that for him with hatred. Gotcha. And do you, do you remember how you first got the idea for Sylvester James, the werewolf hunter in your novels? Well, you know, that's a, uh, that's a question that doesn't have a one answer. He is the child of several different uh, inspirations, uh, some as ridiculous as a, a, an episode of Laverne and Shirley uh, in 1977, and others from uh, a youthful fascination with comic book uh, uh, monster hunters like uh, Marvel's Blade the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I'd noticed that there wasn't there didn't seem to be too many werewolf hunters around in fact i didn't find any short of uh, lon cheney uh i'm sorry claude rains and a silver-handed silver-handled stick in the wolfman so i decided to kind of fill the gap uh with uh, a comic book character when i was probably 10 years old uh and he eventually became sylvester logan james gotcha so, so what is it about the werewolf monster that appeals or, or interests you as a writer? Or as you mentioned earlier, is it more about the, the hunter? Well, it is about the hunter, but, you know, the hunter is not much without his prey. And the werewolf, you know, even though he's not the central point of the book, he is obviously the catalyst by which all these things happen. Werewolves have been my favorite monster, uh, if, you want, if you want to put it that way, since I was a kid. Uh, I don't know. I think it's came from something as simple as, uh, you know, whose monster can beat up whose monster. Uh, I used to, you know, grew up as a big fan of the universal classics like a lot of uh, kids did back then. And uh, I liked the creature from the Black Lagoon because he was so uh, 
you know, completely powerful in the water, and I love Frankenstein because he was unstoppable. But there was something about the werewolf, something about just that innate savagery of the beast that I thought could 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 take out any of them. Um, I thought you know, maybe the only good fight might be between him, it and the creature, but only in the water. Uh, and that was probably my first uh, my first turn on, I guess, towards the werewolf and the fact that I thought it was, it was just the baddest ass monster on the block. And, and I still pretty much think so. But as I got into, uh, when as I got older, you know, and started investigating werewolf myths in both history and mythology, I began to find uh, a lot of other aspects about it, occult aspects that uh, uh, that really inspired me. Sure, um, I'm curious if you've read a lot of other werewolf literature, and if there are particular books that stand out for you that you may have read. I have read quite a bit of of uh, of factual, if, if we can use that term, uh, treatment on the subject that is nonfiction. Uh, I haven't read just a lot of werewolf fiction. I've read maybe a handful of novels, right. but the, the, the ones that really stand out to me as for being important uh, could be uh, Montague Summers' The Werewolf, uh, Montague Summers uh, as whatever people may think of him was an encyclopedia of knowledge on the occult and uh, his representation of the werewolf and his kind of ideas about the werewolf as being, you know, servants of the devil and these kinds of things uh, are at the very heart of my uh, concept of the beast as I refer to it in in the books. So those kinds of books, uh, the ones written by occultists or uh, by people who are giving it more of a socio-anthropological study have uh, done more to influence my opinions and my uh, work on the subject than any fiction ever did. Right, right. What was your background prior to having your first novel published? What was what was the path to publication like for you? Well, I I've been writing since I was a since I was ten years old. I've said this before in other interviews. My mother gave me a typewriter when I was ten, uh, pr- presumably to get her out of or to get me out of her hair on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, and I started typing up stories about you know superheroes and monsters and things like that. And I never stopped. Um, as far as being a published author, the, the the idea that that could ever actually happen never really crossed my mind in any kind of serious way until uh, I became engaged to my wife who was my encouragement you know to go ahead and and self-publish and the idea was if I could self-publish and it was good enough uh, if it turned out to be good enough then somebody would take notice of that and you know offer me uh, a contract and then I could be you know as get out of that uh, the stigma of the self publication thing and if it wasn't good enough, well then it wasn't good enough you know I was always willing to let my work stand or fall on its own merit and it wasn't going to be broken hearted one way or another uh, The big thing I think for for uh, people who want to be published or who are aspiring writers is that you have to do it because you love it and for no other reason because if you're you have some kind of ulterior motive or in the back of your mind you think you're going to make it big someday, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, so you need to do it because you do it whether you made a nickel off of it or not. That's the way I always approached it. And it just happened to turn out uh, that my uh, my gambit of uh, 
getting itself publicly the book self published and then someone taking notice uh, paid off for me so I was very lucky in that regard and and how did that work I know that you're published now by permuted press but but um, so you self-published and then they discovered the novel? Is that how it worked? Right. Yeah, I self-published through uh, a company called iUniverse in mm-hmm. 2003. Uh, that was the, when Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter was then known as um, When the Autumn Moon is Bright. And then it was subtitled Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter. Right. I self-published that one and I entered it in the Independent Publisher Awards uh, contest. And it won uh, – it placed – uh, what would is uh, the equivalent of a silver medal uh, in that in that contest, which gave me great encouragement uh, for something like that to have, you know, the work validated by someone other than you know people who basically have to like it because they're your friends and family. Right. Um, and so that's what I did, and I, and I also self-published Heart of Scars as a sequel. And then uh, Jacob from Permuted Press, uh, I'm not sure exactly how he found uh, found the novels. But I got an email from him one day saying, hey, this is my name. This is the company that I've got, and we're interested in picking you up. And I, I've been skeptical about that, this, these kinds of things because you know there's always somebody wanting to make a buck off your back. Uh, so, But I did the due diligence on that, and, and uh, yeah, it's a great – Permuted Press is a great outfit. I was very lucky to, uh, to, be, uh, to be picked up by them. That's great. That's great. So um, the the book that you uh, self-published, Autobiography of Werewolf Hunter, was that the first novel that you had written or, or were there other, you know, quote unquote, kind of practice novels to, to learn the craft? Yeah, I've got, like I, like I said, I never stopped writing and I never threw anything away either. So what I've got now, uh, somewhere in the annals of my library here, I've got six thick three ring binders full of uh of uh manuscripts they're not actually manuscripts they're they're done on a typewriter which is how i used to write and uh, up until around 2000 when i finally was brought into the computer read kicking and screaming but i have uh six other uh manuscripts totally a lot of them completely unrelated to the material that's out there now uh and the idea was that when i was going to when I rewrote Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter was to take all that material and compile it into one book, and it didn't work out that way at all. And so now I have six, you know, completely unrelated uh, binders full of supplemental material, which sometimes follows and sometimes doesn't follow the chronology of the books. But yeah, that was a lot of practice uh, or good test runs for me there because, uh, like I said, it was all done on computer, and so I remember. You know, making a mistake and running out of correction ribbon and having to run to Walmart, you know, at, at two in the morning and pick up some correction ribbon, get back to the house so I could, you know, go to sleep that night knowing that I had done my best for the day. Right, right. And what kept you going doing that? You know, it's it's a vision for the character. That's all I know how to say it as. I have had a vision uh, in my mind of Sylvester Logan James since probably 1986 i can about pinpoint it to then i mean he was he existed before that in various forms but i really kind of got a feel for him around in around 86 and i still i it, 
I can't shake it. I've tried to write even other things, and I can't do any more than just a couple of short stories at a time before I'm drawn back into the world of, of Sylvester. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to be able to write anything else until I'm done uh, with his story. Uh, and I don't really know how to explain it other than uh, it's just something that I have a real feel for in my heart. I know the guy. Uh, and if he was a real, real human being, I'd be scared shitless of him. But um, <laughs> I know, I feel like I know the guy because he's just been with me for so long. Sure. And and are you working on on a third novel now? And and do you have do you have novels um, in your mind beyond that? I am working on the third novel now. Um, originally, I had kind of planned this to be a trilogy, and that's kind of still where I'm at with it. Uh, I've been working on this last one for a couple of years now. The progress has been slowed considerably uh, due to the birth of my son a couple of years ago uh, because I work slow anyway, and that didn't help right. matters. Uh, but, yeah, we're coming along real good on that. I'm probably two-thirds of the way through, I would, I would estimate, with uh, the lineage, which is what the third one is tentatively called. Um, that should, in effect, wrap up the saga of Sylvester James. And then I beyond that, I do have uh, one thing I want to do before I take up anything else. I want to write a prequel, uh, which should be pretty lengthy, I'm thinking, uh, detailing the life of Sylvester's mentor in the books, Michael Winterfox, who's the old Cheyenne mystic that takes him in and, and teaches him uh, uh, some of the old skills of his uh almost extinct order of Cheyenne warriors. Right. And and given your given your success to date, what advice do you have for aspiring writers who may be listening who who would like to get their own novels or short stories published one day? Well, I I think that my best the best advice that I could give I've already given and that is, you know, if you if you love what you do, if you love to write, if you if you feel like you would do it, no matter uh, if you were doing it for free or not, then you're on the right track. And uh, find something that you know about, but don't be afraid to write what you don't know about because you need to learn as well. A lot of people come from to, from the place you know, like every uh, English teacher or literature teacher tells their kids, you know, write what you know. Well, that's true you know, to start off with, but you also have to be willing to expand your horizons and learn new things because it's the only way you're going to grow as a writer. If you just write what you know, you know, any one of us can, can probably fill a suitcase with what we know. And then what, you know, you have to learn, learn new things and uh, constantly challenge yourself with, uh, detail, vocabulary, and, uh, just uh, the, the poetry of writing. There's so many, so many things I read nowadays that have no heart to it. You know, it's it's either it's either you know very flowered up with this you know fifty dollar words that nobody uses in real life, and I and I use my share of those. I'm not <laughs> I'm not immune to this either. Um, or you know the the dialogue is so stunted that a third grader could have written it. Uh, you know, try to find a middle ground and make make your voice practice getting your voice. Uh, Heard until you're happy with it, because that's pretty much the only way. It's the only standard that you have. If I can read a page and I'm happy with it, then I have to let it go. I sure. can't. I can't worry about you know. Well, is this going to offend this 
part of the population or is somebody going to think that I'm too weak on this subject? You just you have to you have to do what you do and let it go. And that, I think that's true no matter what you do. If you're a writer, painter, sculptor, if you do any kind of a, of a creative thing at all, uh, I think that holds true. Sure, sure. Do you do you have any specific kind of writing process or rituals that you go through? I yeah, I do, and I I think everybody does. But mine are pretty simple compared to some of the ones that I've heard about. Um, I go through a period of again, I, I work slowly, admittedly. So, but I'll go through a period of a year to three years sometimes doing nothing but accumulating ideas. And I'll write ideas down for sometimes, like I said, one to three years and words or phrases or concepts that, that I, that I appeal to me or catch my eye. And I'll let all that kind of get mossy in my head and I keep adding to it. It's kind of like, like throwing compost in a pile, you know, you get, get that all, get it real, work it all up and get it real fertile. And then I know when the time comes. It's in a weird way. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I guess it's kind of like giving birth because you get all this stuff going and you're gestating it in your mind and it's germinating. And finally, there comes a time where you just feel like, yes, now is the time. It's about to spill out of me, you know, and then I'll sit down and I'll start writing. And from there, it's anybody's guess. I've tried to do outlines and that helps me, uh, you know, to some extent. But what I found is that my outlines go right out the window in about chapter two, uh, and the stories pretty much tend to take on a life of their own. The characters create their own dialogue. Not all the time. I mean, I get writer's block like everybody else, and I get stumped for a month or two and just dread getting back to the keyboard again because I don't know what to do. But you know, you, you, that's something you have to face as a writer. You work it out. You keep going. And that's kind of my process. That, that's interesting. I think everybody has their own unique way of approaching the, the, the writing process. So it's good to hear uh, how you do it. Um, what what writers or books, either fiction or nonfiction, have you read in the past year or two that made an impression on you and that you might recommend? Well, I have to say and I have to, you know, I start I know I say this quite a bit, I think, but uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy is hands down the chief of of of, of books not of, of fictional uh, novels that i've read in the last 10 years maybe maybe my whole life uh if you're not familiar with it it's uh, Blood, uh cormac mccarthy of course author of the road no right. country for old men blood meridian is a, is basically and widely considered his masterpiece it's a western uh, uh, it's a western horror I consider it because it's so graphically violent and yet poetic at the same time. And I've read this book probably without exaggeration. I can say that I read or listened to this book about 20 times uh, in the last six years or so. And I have no plans of, of, of not doing, of, of stopping that because <laughs> I just, I just, I just can't get enough of it. Um, what is it about it that 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 resonates with you, or that 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 you know? Well, the one of the things that I that I really relate to about it is that it's kind of it's it's very close to to the kind of things that I write about, and that is uh, a theme of justification or redemption through violence. 
the the characters in the story, although it's a western, uh, are basically trying to uh, find their way in the world and weave order out of chaos through nothing else than you know wanton cruelty, and they're trying to force their way through it. You know the violence, and you know in the books, in in my books, Sylvester James is the same way. He basically has no recourse at a certain point, but to try to find some kind of reason for his life through bloodshed and there's no there's no turning back to it so the bloodshed just has to has to keep coming and it gets deeper and deeper the poetry of blood meridian is the other thing how a book can be so wildly violent and yet so beautifully poetic at the same time is a paradox it's one for the books um Cormac McCarthy, especially in this one, uh, has has just got a way of presenting a severed head on a china platter. Uh, it's just an elegantly brutal masterpiece, and uh, it's the language, you know, it's the the settings. And I'm a I'm a fan of the old west from way back. Uh, I grew up watching spaghetti westerns and and creature feature, you know, and so the western horror connection is very deep runs very deep in my blood and Cormac McCarthy brings that together so well in uh, in Blood Meridian and I know a lot of people have have commented that about the book that they just couldn't finish it because it was so gruesome but uh they're not uh, obviously not horror fans so <laughs> gotcha so so where can people find you online I have a website that I use uh, called uh, werewolfhunter.com and uh Information on my books are there as well as links to my Facebook page, which is where I interact with my readers on a pretty regular basis. I'll post snippets from the new books that I'm working on, uh, information about interviews that I've done. In fact, when whenever this comes out, I'll, I'll have a link to it there. Um, but yeah, werewolfhunter.com is the best place to, to start, and uh, you can find my books through links there on Amazon and like I said, also my Facebook page. Sure, sure. Well, well, great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brian Easton, author of Auto, Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter and Heart of Scars, the second book in the Autobiography of a Werewolf Hunter. Both books, as he just said, are available online and in bookstores. Brian, thanks for doing this podcast. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Sure. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.